everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, if you follow the news closely, sitting US President Joe Biden just quickly wrap up his trip in Asia. Now, this time, not only he met up with a brand new leader in South Korea, but also he visited one of the crucial and critical nations in Asia, which is Japan. Now, Japan and the US will deepen cooperation in building supply chains for cutting-edge semiconductor devices amid growing rivalry between Washington and Beijing. Now, that was only one of the issues that was addressed during the summit between Japan and the US leaders. But meanwhile, China was always become the hot topic for both nations and given this condition, politically and economically, they can be challenging for both nations. So that, that's why today it's important that we need to talk about this relationship between China and Japan and also and uh, Japan and the US. Now, if you follow our show, that you know when our distinguished guest is Professor Mark Lenton. Professor Mark Lenton teaches in political science, including international relations, comparative politics, includes China, Asia-Pacific, and polar region, and he studies security studies and comparative political economy. Meanwhile, his current research interests focus on China, not only domestic, but international politics, and also including the Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia. So again, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Mark, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much. Great to be back. Well, the pleasure's all mine. Now, Professor Mark, let's get to the question right away. As I mentioned in the intro, President Biden quickly wrapped up his trip in Asia. Not only he met up with the newly elected leader in South Korea, but also he met up with one of the strategic partners in Asia, which is Japan. Now, keep in mind that if we look at the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, Japan was actually the first country came out strongly condemned behavior, not only towards Vladimir Putin, but also the Russian government. But meanwhile, the U.S. seemed to have this ambiguous ideas, you know, again, only says a lot, but only did little in order to support this Ukraine or Ukrainian government. Now, Professor Mark, from my perspective, do you think that Japan during the war or given this political conflict has become the mouthpiece for the U.S. government? And if so, how should we understand or balance the relationship between U.S. and Japan today? Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, you're absolutely right in that Japan has been a considerable policy priority for the Biden government upon taking office. Relations between the U.S. and Japan were very difficult under the Trump administration, so there was a bit of mending fences that needed to be undertaken. And the United States was also trying to assure uh, Japan and South Korea and its other allies in the Asia Pacific that the U.S. is there, that the U.S. is not going to ignore the region. And despite the Ukraine conflict, East Asia is still a policy priority. So what the Biden trip has succeeded in doing is to begin to reconstruct what may be considered to be maybe not necessarily renewed East Asian alliance, but rather a configuration of security cooperation mm. to really demonstrate that the U.S. wants to work more closely with Japan, with the other allies to fully uh, assure the region that the U.S. is going to uh, align more definitively against what they see as uh, China's growing power. Mm. Well, you know, again, Professor Mark, it was such a 
busy schedule for President Biden. Now, after meeting up with the uh, South Korean leader and also the Japanese uh, uh, prime minister alone, but meanwhile, he also met up with the rest of the three uh, uh, leaders as well. Again, Japanese prime minister and also the new newly elected leader in Australia and also the current leader in India. Now, those four countries put it together. Again, you're familiar with the word quad relationship. But meanwhile, Chinese government... I guess the word we're saying is downplaying this quad relationship. So in other words, for China, on one hand, it should be concerning uh, in terms of this coalition. But meanwhile, China can't afford to uh, poke the bear or can't afford to uh, go single-handed to uh, be against those four nations, you know, in terms of coalition. Now, from your perspective, how significant it is for U.S. continue to build this coalition with rest of the three countries in order to secure this position in the Quad coalition? Yes, the, the Quad idea had been kind of bouncing around regional policy circles for the better part of 15 years. And actually, it was a previous Japanese prime minister, Abe Shinzo, who first articulated the idea of a security diamond, which would include Japan, the United States, India and uh, Australia. So it kind of went on the down low for a very long period of time, but it is very much back largely as a response to ongoing concerns about um, China's growing uh, weight in the region, the fact that China is now starting to push outward with its security interests in the Pacific. Mm. And we're seeing this right now, by the way, with the uh, tour of the Pacific Islands by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, which has gotten a lot of attention in the US, Australia, and Japan all at the same time. So Japan is looking at the change security relationship, not only in regards to China, but I can point to North Korea, which has started to test uh, more significant uh, missiles, including intercontinental mm. ballistic missiles. Japan is also very concerned about Russia. The two countries are neighbors. Japan is very worried that if we start to see closer security cooperation between Russia and China, that's going to be a considerable challenge to uh, Japanese security. And this has been going on at the same time as the Kushida government is facing a lot of internal debate over what uh, Japan's uh, defense stand should be. There's been more talk about more advanced weaponry, greater cooperation with the United mm. States and the other Quad members, and uh, even increases in defense spending, which would go beyond the kind of assumed 1% of GDP, don't go over that. Well, that kind of old thinking is gone now, because Japan is now starting to look at a very changed atmosphere all around it. Well, but Professor uh, Mark, I mean, you know this as well as I do, but if we learn anything uh, from this Ukrainian war, that we have to say that United States today, it's not an ideal source or it's not an ideal partner in terms of getting itself into the war. So in other words, if the Japanese government is placing, I don't want to say the full bet, but I just say majority of the resources or support in the U.S., that could be a very risky and uncertain bet. So in other words, at this moment, we don't know that how U.S. is going to respond to any other major conflict. Given this condition, U.S.'s policy domestically and internationally are both standing at the crossroads. So at this moment, how do you think the Japanese government should caution to deal with U.S. not to replace too much confidence, but meanwhile can't pull himself away because given this condition, U.S. cannot be in a very stable position uh, uh, internationally and also domestically. Am I right on this? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I would 
say both in Japan and in, in the United States, there are very significant domestic level um, decisions that have to be made and a great deal of controversies over which uh, kind of policy directions both countries are going to be going in the near future. Now, as I mentioned, Japan is starting to look more uh, significantly at becoming a quote-unquote normal country with a more standard uh, defense policy to reflect the change atmosphere. But to understand, there's still a lot of uh, political views within the country that Japan is significant, that it has a very peaceful stance, that it should um, align its priorities with self-defense and not get entangled in external conflicts, including the situation with Ukraine. So the debate may have shifted a bit within the country, but it is still very much there. Now, you talk about the United States. Well, it's very nice that we've started to see a significant movement towards greater East Asian security cooperation mm. with the U.S. at the forefront. But we're heading into a very um, uncertain political period. First of all, the midterms in the U.S. later this year and the elections in uh, the U.S. in 2024. Mm. We might see a Republican government. We might see another lurch towards isolationism. And we might see an attempt by a hypothetical Republican president to kind of tear up what has been done already. So these are all very significant concerns, which are very much in the minds of Japan, Korea, and various other U.S. allies. But meanwhile, Professor Mark, again, if we go back to uh, the rhetoric study from the leader on uh, under J Japanese government and also uh, the newly elected South Korean uh, leader and also uh, and the newly elected leader in Australia... Those countries, again, I don't want to say they've been assimilating their ideas with the U.S. government, but they seem to take more tougher or much tougher approach towards China, and which I think by now that most of the countries should learn, if you are playing a hard ball with China, and that's not a win-win solution, and that's not even a win-lose solution, because neither side is willing to barge and neither the side is willing to compromise so in other words why even bother to take a hard stand against china potentially and why not just say loosen up the policy or why not just play this uh, a diplomatic relationship instead of putting out this tough rhetoric and to demonstrate what point yeah very um valid argument to make, especially when you consider that all of the countries that we're talking about uh, are looking at China not only as an adversary, but also as still a very important trading partner. Like for all of the discussion, just to give one example, in the United States about decoupling mm -hmm. from the Chinese economy, we're talking about a relationship that is worth at least $500 billion per year. It's not something that can be severed overnight without considerable damage to both economies. And we're already seeing a great deal of economic uncertainty across the board. Mm -hmm. China itself is definitely heading into some major economic headwinds. Mm -hmm. um, the zero COVID policy, slowdown of various sectors within the country, uh, a big party congress coming up later this year. So all eyes are going to be on Beijing. And the question that is being asked now is how can you balance, and this is pretty much what everyone is asking in and around the region, how can one balance the economic relationship with China versus is the fact that China is now being seen as a much more significant security challenge mm. to much of the Asia Pacific. There was a very interesting speech by uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, this week uh, attempting to outline U.S.-China policy going mm. forward. And he acknowledged the fact that when we talk about um, China's rise, we can't just look at it as a security power, but also mm. as an economic one. So 
he was very, uh, very much stressing the point that this is not a new Cold War. This is not containment, but this is a relationship which we have to balance very carefully. That's right. And I'm very glad, Professor Mark, you mentioned the speech was done by uh, current Secretary of the State, Tony Blinkens. Now, this is something he said, and I quote, when questioned regarding the U.S. and China policy, and this is how he responded, he said, I quote, China's only country with both intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do it. Now, I'm not saying that Blinken was wrong or was right on, uh, on some of the parts, but Professor Mark, you know this as well as I do, that this year... It's been has been very crucial for China, not only for the Chinese government to deal with the ongoing pandemic, but also this year is supposed to be the year for the current Chinese leader Xi Jinping to build his legacy. So, in other words, he's coming into the third term, you know, based on uh, after write, uh, rewriting the constitution. Now, if if he were smart enough. He wouldn't go into the war or he wouldn't start the conflict with any other countries. Given this condition, China is not interested in going into war with any country. Again, China is only interested in economic power, you know, political influence and enhancing this Belt and Road project. So again, Professor Mark, why do you think the officials from the U.S. government today kept on emphasizing that China's interest in military expansion, political expansion, even as well as this technological takeover. Is American uh, right on this or something we're missing uh, behind the doors? Yes, well, there's a very long-winded uh, international relations lecture behind this, but the short version is there has been the argument that when you have a new great power and potential global power appearing on the scene, it is disruptive. Now, the Chinese government has said for many years that it is interested in hoping uh, Fajan, peaceful development. Mm. But the counter argument is that it is simply not possible when you have a country like China that has risen so quickly that it has such an effect on so many different aspects of the international system, economic, politically, uh, and in terms of security, that some kind of disruption is inevitable. Now, you're absolutely right and that China's position now is very difficult in regards to its domestic situation. There has been a lot of discussion over the merits of the zero COVID policy, the mm -hmm. fact that you have several million people in China that are still experiencing lockdown, including in Shanghai, which is not exactly a tiny part of the That's Chinese right. economy. And you have a lot of concerns that this is having a uh, knock-on effect in regards to food security, uh, supply chain security, and the situation is simply not sustainable. I would argue argue, just to pick up your question about conflict, that the chances of China engaging in any kind of further belligerent activity towards Taiwan in the near future, I say, have gone down a lot, both because we're heading into a difficult period within China domestically, but also the Chinese government is looking at what is happening with Ukraine right now and realizing that, you know, for all of the pre-planning that Russia had undertaken, things are not necessarily going well for Russian planners. Mm. So for the U.S. to talk about China wanting to challenge 
change the international system. There is the assumption that as China grows, it will want to continue to make changes in international regimes and norms. Mm. But also that China has pointed out, has been much more critical of the West, has been much more critical of countries that have been seen as speaking against or acting against the Chinese nation. Uh, there's been all this debate about quote unquote wolf warrior diplomacy and so mm. forth. And China is also very well aware that it's heading into a very delicate phase of its international growth that other great powers that have tried to establish themselves have often been pushed backward. So we're seeing the result of a lot of uncertainty in the U.S., a lot of uncertainty in China, imperfect communication, and a very difficult period, not only for both countries, but for the international community as a whole. Mm. It's, it's almost a perfect storm situation. Professor Mark, I want to go back to your expertise regarding this relationship between China and Japan. Again, historically speaking, boy, I mean, if we talk about, you know, the history between China and Japan, I guess we have to spend uh, more than 30 hours, you know, on this lecture. But meanwhile, but, but fast forward, China has been very hot and cold towards Japan, especially uh, uh, given this current condition that Japan is growing much closer towards the U.S., but meanwhile, you know, if we know the current leader in China, you know, has been very good at holding this poker face. So in other words, we respect the sovereignty of each country, but also it is our own, uh, 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 how can I say, uh, uh, system or it is our own sovereignty to defend our own uh, democracy. You know, again, this is what the Chinese government believe. But we know that Japan, in the current Japanese government, has been poking the Chinese domestic affairs, especially regarding this territorial dispute, for so long. Now, from your perspective, how should we evaluate the relationship between China and Japan today? And is there any way that we can maintain a peaceful or at least a diplomatic stability between those two countries? It's an excellent question. And there's a phrase that has been kind of bandied around when talking about the relationship between China and Japan for the better part of 30 years. Um, hot economics and cold politics. Mm. Many international relations specialists have struggled to figure out, on one hand, you have a very strong trading relationship between the two states. Uh, all kinds of new trade agreements have been struck over the past few decades, and there's certainly a great deal of potential for growth. But that has not translated into... Um, better political relationship. There is still a lot of concern between the two. China is concerned about Japan's overall power trajectory. It is worried that should Japan begin to adopt a much more independent uh, foreign policy and uh, security stance, this would affect a lot of China's interests in the Asia Pacific. But paradoxically, China's also worried that a too close relationship between Japan and the United States would also put more pressure on China in regards mm. to its regional and international plans. So China does not see a lot of very good options here. Japan, as you say, is very concerned that as China continues to grow, especially in regards to being a military power and especially a maritime military power, it will start to push more forcefully uh, to press its sovereign claims or its uh, perceived sovereign claims in uh, the East China Sea, uh, the Senkaku or Daoyu Islands, and it will become much more difficult for Japan to maintain its current security stance. And wrapped up in this is Taiwan. There are many uh, senior Japanese politicians, including, as I mentioned, former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, who have been very specific that Japan should be doing more to help Taiwan, to assist with Taiwan, and to ensure that the current status quo is maintained, especially now that China has begun much more, uh, shall we say, forceful in 
pressing idea that uh, Taiwan is a part of China. So even though there is still a great deal of enthusiasm for maintaining a certain amount of economic cooperation between the two countries, politically it has become considerably more complicated. Add the Quad on top of that, this has further caused a lot of Chinese concerns that Japan is starting to be pulled much closer into the US orbit. And more of a concern to Beijing, Japan might be the core of some kind of new Asian NATO, mm -hmm. which is exactly what China does not want. Well, but um, Professor Mark, not too long ago, and also I talked to someone, you know, who's uh, a, a well-known uh, cell biologist. You know, the reason that we have the conversation, because also I'm sure that you know that COVID, the pandemic, hit the one of the countries in Asia, which is North Korea. And right now it's beginning more devastating than ever. But again, Japan and the Japanese government has been very much terrified uh, by the North Korean regime because the ongoing missile tests. But meanwhile, that we know China and the North Korea, again, uh, if I want to be careful right here, politically or economically speaking, are much closer comparing with China and the, Japan and the Japanese government. So in other words, we know that in order to get North Korea to double down or to tone it down on the missile defense uh, to the on the missile development or any other major threat, China has to become a key player. But if Japan continue to offend China diplomatically or you know uh, politically, now the end of the result for Japan to uh, uh, say to uh, protect itself from North Korea, it's not going to become a better picture. It's not going to even become an ideal picture. So in other words, why do you think that Japan it's willing or might not be willing, but Japan is taking the risk to poke China. And even though the Japanese government understands that in order to manipulate North Korea, China can be the only or at least so far the most effective player today. Yeah, you raise a good point, and that also comes up in a lot of U.S. discussions about China as well. Uh, the U.S. has said that China is definitely a required partner for many security concerns, including North Korea, as well as issues such as climate change, which is a major reason why the United States States has taken great pains not to define uh, the current relationship as an ace of Cold War. Now, North Korea, yes, unfortunately, we are kind of back to the future. Like for a few years ago, there was a lot of discussion that North Korea might be coming out of the cold, that we were starting to see some significant diplomatic initiatives uh, involving uh, Pyongyang. That, I'd say, is pretty much over. We are starting to see, again, a kind of reversal of uh, the gains that have been made. We do not know the degree to which COVID is affecting the country, but as you say, reports do suggest that the situation is very dire. Mm. And we've also seen a pattern, uh, very common, whenever you get a new government uh, coming into office in Seoul, that North Korea's kind of own version of kind of banging on the door is to do missile tests, to say, mm. I'm here, please don't ignore me, I should be the priority. Mm. Now, ideally, a few years back, there were attempts through uh, initiatives like the six-party talks to create some kind of multilateral mm. forum towards dealing with North Korean disarmament. That is going to be very difficult under current circumstances, because as you say, the relationship between China and the U.S., Japan and China have all become much more complicated. And Japan is starting to, as you correctly know, focus more on China as the, maybe not the imminent threat, but one which is requiring a great deal more attention. Mm. So the question that nobody is able to answer this early is that, are we seeing what is happening in North Korea now to simply be another phase? This is another example of North Korea trying to get regional and global attention. Or if North Korea 
is quite serious about projecting its military power, testing longer range missiles and being much more threatening to Japan, to South Korea and to Northeast Asia as whole, what can be done about it? Because it is going to be very difficult, for example, with a lot of global attention being paid to Ukraine, with the United States obviously very concerned about China, uh, can North Korea kind of fit onto the repertoire? Mm. You know, again, Professor Mark, I got one more question before we move on to the final part of the uh, conversation. Now, let's go back to China, for example. We always say that whenever there's an election takes place and domestically, and that should be only uh, uh, matters to the people, uh, let's say, for the locals. Again, I guess for international players, and I get that will take a while to see any results. But meanwhile, correct me if I'm wrong, during this recent election in South Korea, Chinese government sent the vice president to attend the inaugural ceremony, you know, to congratulate this uh, newly elected leader in South Korea. But meanwhile, as you mentioned before, the foreign minister Wang Yi also was assigned on a trips, you know, again, to meet up with counterparts or diplomats around the entire Asian region. Now, let's just say if China were to compete with the U.S. in terms of, you know, consolidating power or building this presence, why did China do it so secretively? So in other words, I don't want to say this is the Chinese style, but is there anything or was there anything that we don't know behind those hidden trips? And what message do you think that the Chinese government was trying to send to the leaders or send to the diplomats in the midst of the whole uh, debates or, or chaos with the U.S.? Yeah, very good question. First of all, the relationship between China and uh, the Republic of Korea has been complicated for a very long time. Because as with Japan, Korea has also been trying to balance very carefully between its interests uh, with the United States, with the West, and maintaining a strong, solid trading relationship, especially with China. Mm. Acknowledging that China is our neighbor, they are not going anywhere, so a certain amount of diplomacy must be maintained. Now, the incoming uh, Korean government, however, has made very little sign of the fact that it wants to align more closely towards the U.S. and to the West and to get more involved in security cooperation with the United States. So China is seeking to quietly and carefully work out ways of making sure that at least a certain degree of uh, diplomatic relationship is maintained with Seoul. Now, Wang Yi's trip to the Pacific Islands, this has been getting a lot of attention. Uh, my colleagues in Australia and New Zealand are watching this very closely. Mm. There's the tendency, at least among some commentators, to say, well, this is a big surprise. We did not see this coming. That's right. Uh, no, this was very much telegraphed for a very long time. Mm. Uh, ever since uh, Wen Jibao, the former Chinese premier, made his first trips to the region, going to Fiji in 2006, it was very obvious that China was viewing the Pacific as a very important area for economic and diplomatic cooperation. Mm. When the AUKUS agreement, uh, the kind of trilateral agreement between Australia, the US and the UK was announced last year, that was a very strong sign to Beijing that if it did not begin to consolidate its security interests in the Pacific, it was going to be at a disadvantage. Mm. Now, the Chinese government has said up and down that these meetings in the Pacific are primarily to set up economic agreements, assistance with policing, assistance with, um, for example, health issues. But this is not being taken as seriously in the U.S. or Australia because we're talking about very important part of the world. Um, 
In some cases, you have potential partnerships with countries like Kiribati, Solomon Islands, which are very close to Hawaii, very close to American positions in the Pacific. And that has led to a concern about a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And I would say that China has pointed to AUKUS, has pointed to the Quad to say, well, we have no choice but to respond to what we're seeing as the West attempt to militarize the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So this is very much, I would say, a reactive, at least as far as Beijing is concerned, a very reactive set of policies. Mm-hmm. Professor Mark, I want to get to the last part of our conversation regarding the region of Taiwan. And again, during the trip that uh, President Biden met up with the current uh, uh, prime minister in Japan, he was questioned whether U.S. will continue to defend Taiwan if China were to take over Taiwan, were to invade Taiwan by using the military force. President Biden had a very firm answer, which is yes. And then the White House, they have to walk it back and to explain specifically what the President Biden was trying to say. But the bottom line was, U.S. has always been a very firm to taking a stand against China in terms of defending Taiwan. Now, this question might sound really silly, but I still want to ask. Joe Biden was not, was on a foreign territory. Why even bother to answer that question? Because he knew, and I think everyone knew at the moment, that Taiwan is such a sensitive and a critical topic that China has been dealing with this issue for years, for decades, regarding who the current leader is. So why even bother to go there if you are trying to improve this relationship or trying not to put anyone be caught in the middle? Yeah, not a silly question at all, a very complex one. Like, there was the tendency among some of the press to say, well, this was President Biden making a gaffe, like he spoke Mm. out of turn. I find that extremely unlikely. I think that what all this bubbles down to is the whole kind of long standing idea of strategic ambiguity. It is understood that the United States does want to see Taiwan intact, does want to see Taiwan safe and wants to guarantee uh, the island's security. But there was always the idea that, okay, the perception is there, but you do not say it out loud, and you certainly do not say it in a public forum, especially like what we saw in Japan. So that definitely would seem to suggest that the concept of strategic ambiguity is starting to erode, not going away, but it is starting to shift a bit with the United States being much more open to the idea that, look, we want to protect Taiwanese interests. Because Taiwan has very much um, increased, I would say, improved its international status, uh, partially due to its COVID policy, partially due to its health diplomacy and the big debate over its association with the World Health Organization, that many countries are starting to see Taiwan as a very important partner, Mm. economically and in some cases politically. So I would say that the U.S. is responding to that. And this, too, is also part of the relationship between the United States and Japan. Because I said before, Japan is also starting to look at Taiwan much more closely as a partner economically, politically, and even in some cases strategically. So although this is obviously ruffling quite a few feathers in Beijing, and it is certainly causing a lot more concern that with AUKUS, with the Quad, with the Taiwan situation beginning to shift, that we are starting to see a more zero-sum game being played out in the Pacific Rim. But I think it was felt by the uh, Biden administration that this kind of assurance that, yes, the U.S. is not going anywhere, that is not going to be distracted by Ukraine, by the Ukraine conflict, and that we are willing to work with our allies in the Asia-Pacific, that message had to be sent. Mm. Professor Mark, I want to end our conversation with something, again, it's very crucial not only to the country of China, but also to Japan and the U.S. regarding that what we called 
technological competition. You know, we know that China for decades has been trying to keep up with the development in semiconductor. And again, those type of very complicated technological uh, tools. And, you know, I get put in a simple way, those little chips that we use. But meanwhile, you know, again, according to the recent source, the Japan and the U.S. hope to catch up with Taiwanese and South Korean companies in the production of those chips and eventually leading the industry even more advanced semiconductors. So in other words, China is falling behind and China is having a very much difficult time to competing with a country such as South Korea and Japan and the US. But meanwhile, China still poses as one of the one of the technological threat, not only to the US, but also to you know, some of the countries outside the US. So my last question, a uh, question to you, Professor Mark, why do you think China is still very much interested in pushing the agenda in, in such technological war instead of just wait until turn or instead of just, you know, stay where it is? Because China can't put too much on the plate and the, the current leader or the current administration has to put more emphasis on what's more important for the nation today. Yeah, that is an excellent question, and the answer has many layers. First of all, what China's been trying to do over the past uh, decade or so is shift its economic priority away from the manufacturing for export sector because of ongoing global economic uncertainty. Mm. Manufacturing is still going to be a major part of the Chinese economy. But Beijing has also placed much more focus on high technology development, mm. uh, areas which have long been U.S. and Western dominated. There was a policy paper in China a short time ago, the Made in China 2025 initiative, mm. where China was going to be leapfrogging several technologies, artificial intelligence, blockchain, quantum computing, all of that would be seen as priorities for the Chinese economy. And in many ways, it has made considerable strides to the point where the United States is starting to become concerned that China might be in a position to start setting technological standards for what is coming next. Now, that said, as you correctly point out, one Achilles heel of China's economy when it comes to high technology is the availability of semiconductors, uh, right. chip technology, which is very much focused on Taiwan. And there have been a lot of discussions about diversifying that technology in order to reduce uh, not only issues with supply chains, but also to create a much safer economic atmosphere for the West. And it's a similar argument that we're having up here in the Arctic. Uh, everyone's now talking about strategic materials, uh, rare earths, which China is also currently dominating. So people are looking at Canada and Greenland and the Nordic region as you know potential new sources of these rare earths. So a lot of this is to avoid any kind of bottlenecks and any kind of significant, uh, shall we say, dangers to supply, especially as these technologies become much more important to everyone's daily life and to uh, the global economy. So China is cognizant of the fact that even as it's competing with the United States, it does have those weaknesses. Mm. And one of the worries that has been uh, discussed about China's long-term uh, plans for Taiwan is that because China is behind on these technologies and Taiwan does have a considerable amount of expertise in semiconductors, does that create a security risk? Mm. So China, and I would say even now, now that there's been so much focus on decoupling about more economic self-sufficiency within China, high technology is very much part of that equation. And I think, again, along with what you said, Professor Mark, it's rather interesting and also, of course, it's even more amusing 
to say that how the Chinese leader today is going to continue not only to influence the policies domestically, but also internationally. Again, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Professor Mark Lenton, and Professor Mark teaches in political science, including international relations, and his current research focuses on China, domestic and international politics, and East Asia, the countries including Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia. Again, Professor Mark, it's always been a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. And again, I know you're very busy, and but you are very experienced in helping us to analyze and understanding the current political atmosphere regarding China and more countries. Again, Professor Mark, thank you so much for doing this.